Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The term mastermind was originally written in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Before that, the earliest documentation that we have of a mastermind group was Ben Franklin's group that he used to meet every single week in a tavern that he called Huntus. Nation, there's no doubt about it. Life is too short to do it alone, and it's not very much fun to do it alone in. Nation, I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com and find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. I'd love to have a 15-minute call with you to explain all things Rising Tide Mastermind and see if this is a group that's right for you and you are right for the group. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up our knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. We are right smack dab in the middle of Legionella Awareness Month, and already so many people have logged on to our website to learn more about Legionella. If you are one of those people, you know how much information the fine staff here at Scaling Up H2O has put together to make it easy for you to learn more about what you should know about Legionella and how to explain it to your customers. If you are wondering what I'm talking about, that means you have not gone to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Legionella. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash Legionella where the fine folks here at Scaling Up H2O have just put together so much information to make it easy for you to start your research so you can start creating dialogue with your customers, giving them better information so they can make better decisions. And of course, the last couple of episodes, that's what we've been doing. We've been talking about how do we become more in the know about Legionella. Today's going to be no different, but before we get there, I do want to talk about a couple of events that you might want to put on your calendar. This first one is taking place November 12th through 16th. It is the International Water Conference, and it is being held in San Antonio, Texas. Nation, I am so pleased to tell you that the International Water Conference has asked yours truly to be this year's keynote speaker. I am so humbled. I am so excited. I can't wait to meet members of the Scaling Up Nation there at the International Water Conference and meet new people that maybe didn't even know about the Scaling Up H2O program, but it's been so much fun working with the folks at the International Water Conference. I'm super honored and I wanna thank them for selecting me as this year's keynote speaker, and I cannot wait to get on that stage and deliver my keynote speech. Just a couple months ago, I think I was telling you about developing a TED Talk well, if you do something and you finish it and you don't have something else that you are stretching yourself to make sure you are getting better in whatever you are trying to get better at, then I've been told you're not doing it right. Just like a runner. If a runner finishes up a race and they don't have their second race scheduled, 
Well, a lot of times that's how people stop running. So that's what I did. I uh, was contacted by the staff at the International Water Conference and they asked if I would do this and I thought it was a tremendous opportunity. So I can't wait to do that. And I can't wait to see all the people there on November 12th through 16th in San Antonio. Hopefully one of those people will be you. And by the way, if you want to learn more about the International Water Conference, you know where to find that. That's going to scalinguph2o.com and our events page will have all of that information. So hopefully you can make arrangements to see me in person. Another event you will find there is the Water Smart Innovations Conference, October 3rd through 5th in Las Vegas, Nevada. And that's hosted by the American Waterworks Association. And then the next one is Water Pro Conference, September 25th through 27th in Aurora, Colorado, put on by the National Rural Water Association. This is a conference that is known as the Industry Event of the Year. So to find out more about all of these, scalinguph2o.com and go over to our events page. Nation, this whole month is about Legionella, about learning more about what we need to know so we can better counsel our clients. And with that, I know you are going to enjoy our next interview. My lab partner today is returning guest, Dr. Alberto Comazzi. Alberto, how are you, sir? Hi, Trace. Uh, very good, and thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if this information got back to you, but you were one of the most listened to episodes that we have had. Awesome. That's, uh, that's great. Hopefully, this wine is going to be a good one as well. <laughs> we, we are hoping that the ratings double. So anything exactly. less will be considered a failure. No pressure. Exactly. We got to do some good sharing. There we go. If somebody did not listen to episode 212 uh, and they're wondering, uh, who's this guy that's getting all these listens? What do you want to tell them? I've been working in water treatment for quite a few years at this point, uh, especially water disinfection, water hygiene. So what I personally do, we help building in protecting, you know, actually the building occupants from waterborne pathogens, infections. And the way we do that is with supplemented disinfectants. So last time in the last episode 212, we kind of talked about uh, what a building can do or what a, what a building should do when they test positive for Legionella. You know, what are the options um, for a building? Whereas this time, uh, hopefully, you know, we're going to talk about more what are the options just in terms of disinfectants, all the pros and cons about um, all the disinfectants. Well, I, I know a lot of people are confused about all the different options out there. So this is going to be a great episode. However, you and I just got back from an Association of Water Technologies convention in Canada. What was your experience there like? It was great. It was great. I mean, I had a you know, great show, great city. Uh, apparently, we were very happy with the weather. Everybody who lived in Vancouver said that it's, it gets very rainy uh, around that time of the year, but we got really good weather for the entire convention. And I actually got to realize my dream. I flew a plane. So that was you great. flew a plane? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were those seaplanes on the bay. Uh, so we booked a tour. Um, I got to sit on the front seat because the plane was small. 
And I actually got to pilot the plane. They let me pilot the plane for, you know, five or 10 minutes. So that was great. I mean, I, I realized my dream. So I can, I'm in peace right now. <laughs> That's awesome. So is a private pilot's license in your future? I can because, I mean, people cannot see me on camera right now, but my eyes are pretty bad. I have very thick <laughs> glasses. And even with my glasses, I can really see well. So um, it's not going to happen, unfortunately. The next life, maybe. Fair enough. Fair enough. Apparently, you have to see in order to be able to land. Apparently, that's what they say. Well, let's go straight into what people have questions about. So they have now received a positive Legionella result, and it's now thrown them into the situation where they have to do some sort of remediation. Now, that being said, before we jump right into what to do, just that small part right there, if there's a document, that's pretty easy to figure out what to do. If there's not a document, everybody's pointing fingers on what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? So if we test for something, what should be in place before we even have that conversation? Well, I think that, uh, of course, even if it's a mandatory building shoot test for Legionella, because that's the only way to know if your water management plan is working. Now, Water management plans suggest buildings, might suggest buildings to test for Legionella as a part of your water management plan, but um, it's all mandatory. But I would say that that's the, you know, the, the only possible way to determine if your plan is working. And especially even before you implement the plan to test for Legionella and possibly out of waterborne pathogens and establish a baseline and understand if you have the need to implement some sort of disinfection. Now, what if somebody has a customer and they say, we want you to run all these tests for Legionella, but we do not have a plan? I mean, that's, that could be the case. Um, and that usually happens in buildings that are not uh, healthcare related. Healthcare facilities must have uh, a water management plan because of a document that was published by the CMS in, back in 2017. Uh, CMS stands for Center for Medicare, Medicaid Services. Where basically, you know, they were telling uh, healthcare facilities that they needed to implement a water management plan um, in order to be eligible to receive funding. And starting from, I think, January this year, the Joint Commission started to audit healthcare facilities and make sure that the plan was being implemented. You know, I mean, you can have a plan well written, uh, but if the plan is sitting on a shelf and nobody's doing that, is implementing that, it's, you know, you're not complying with your plan. In other facilities, such as hotels or apartment complexes, um, you know, all those big buildings where they might be at risk for Legionella, but they do not have to have a plan. You know, it's not mandatory for them to have a plan. However, um, I would say that especially right now, um, after the pandemic, uh, there is a much greater awareness about pathogens in general uh, and waterborne pathogens. So... It's good to see that a lot of buildings, even not healthcare, are starting to be proactive and test for Legionella and implement some sort of plan to make sure that, you know, the occupants of the buildings are safe. So it's not, you know, it's not impossible to run into a building where they are already performing testing, even if they don't really have a water management plan. And they just do that to make sure that they don't have any kind of safety concern from a waterborne pathogen standpoint. So before we get into disinfection methods, when should we even look at that? Is it when we get a single 
positive result back or multiple positive results back? The magic number, let's say, in the literature is 30%. So if you're testing positive for Legionella, but your rate of positivity is below 30%, so less than 30% of your samples tested positive for Legionella, that's considered control. But of course, you know, we should aim for numbers that are lower than that. And, you know, there's not a universal answer to that question. There are buildings. It, it really goes, you know, it really gets down to the management of the building. There are people that are super proactive and, you know, as soon as they have a positive, they want to do something right away, implement something right away. There are other buildings that say, you know, well, let's run another round of samples and then see what that looks like. And maybe then we'll implement some sort of disinfection. I mean, there are steps that can be implemented before a supplemental disinfection system is put into a building. What are some of those steps? So for example, um, first of all, it's good water management practices. So temperature control, make sure that the temperature in your buildings are balanced, especially in the domestic hot water system. Make sure that in, you know if temperatures are balances are balanced. Um, make sure you have good recirculate in the building and uh, good water consumption. So low water age. So you know facilities should mm, implement flushing. And then sometimes when they have a positive, they even do some more aggressive flushing. But then if if it becomes chronic, then at that point in time, they might think about installing a supplemental disinfection system in some part of the facility. And I think we talked about these uh, last time as well. Facilities can also um, implement point-of-use filters. Uh, so it's basically a mechanical barrier. The bacteria cannot flow through the filter. So that will prevent exposure, but it's not going to fix the problem uh, in the piping system. So what facilities do sometimes in response to an outbreak, I mean, you know, sometimes there are outbreaks. So if, if there is a big problem, um, just to implement something quick, uh, the facility will install filters everywhere on the short term. Um, while they're working on reducing the Legionella problem. And sometimes facilities decide to uh, keep filters on in those areas of the buildings, especially healthcare facilities where highly immunocompromised people um, are. So, you know, uh, bone, bone marrow transplant, um, cancer centers, uh, ICU or in the NICU. Uh, sometimes they decide to implement filters and keep them there. Um, but usually they're not a long-term solution. And it's usually used in conjunction with supplemental disinfectant. But again, if a facility is experiencing chronic Legionella issues, so I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the janitor closet, the, the faucets in there uh, test positive, but nobody literally used that, have used that faucet for months and months, um, you know, that should not trigger the use of a supplemental disinfectant. But if you test in different part of the building for multiple times and you have positives, and your other controlled methods, so flushing didn't help, then yeah, it might be good to think about implementing a supplemental disinfectant. Well, for purposes of this conversation, let's say there is a water management plan written. They did a good series of testing and it came back more than 30% positive. So now we've got to do something. What do we do? So on that, at that point, the facility should start to think about uh, implementing a supplemental disinfectant. So if the facility, if, you know, if the decision makers are not aware of the options that are available in the marketplace, they should ask an expert about what the 
option could be for the building and evaluate the pros and the cons um, of the disinfectant and the way the disinfectant is being applied. You know, there is a difference between supplemental disinfectant, which some people also call them secondary disinfectant, but the, the mm-hmm. correct term is supplemental disinfectant in building. And, you know, disinfectants in general that sometimes are used for a short course remediation, so shock treatment. Um, a lot of times facilities decide to implement that instead of implementing something long-term. Um, you know, supplemental disinfectant, it's something that, as the word say, supplement what is necessary to help the building plumbing systems in remain safe. Um, so it's something that it's turned on and it's technically it will always work in order to maintain the disinfectant levels at a certain point in the building plumbing system. A shock treatment is something that facilities sometimes do, and it's basically shock treating, or another word that is used is hyperchlorinating uh, the building. So feeding a lot of disinfectant, a very high concentration, above the legal limit for drinking water. So you have to go on water restriction and leave the disinfectant sitting in the pipes for a certain amount of time and then flush it out. Of course, there are pros and cons for each of the alternatives, right? You know, short course remediation, something that you you know you do one time you think it's going to work um it's definitely not going to cost as much as implementing a supplemental disinfection disinfectant because it's a one-time thing um you have to go on water restriction so that especially in healthcare facilities uh, might not be really feasible or you know in hotels now you got to go on water restriction you have to tell people they can't take shower plus very high levels of chlorine um you know legal limit for drinking water is 4 ppm for chlorine, a monochloramine, and 0.8 for chlorine dioxide. When we talk about shock feeding a building with chlorine or chlorine dioxide, we're going at levels that are way above that. Then you have to flush it out, and such a high levels of chlorine or chlorine dioxide could be, uh, you know, they could be, they could damage the plumbing system. That could be corrosive. Plus, shock treating, it's known, it's well reported in the literature that um, a shock treatment it's not effective over the long term. You know, let's pretend that you implement your shock treatment perfectly. Like you are killing 100% of the bacteria that are in your plumbing system everywhere, in every point in the pl- your plumbing system. You're still going to be affected from what's coming in from the city. You know, that's how waterborne pathogens come into a building. You know, they survive the disinfection steps that the city is doing. And then they come into a building and, you know, the building, a building plumbing system, it is, the design is as such that it's a perfect environment for the growth of pathogens. You know, you have to think about a lot of small pipes that will offer a lot of surface area for biofilm to grow and bacteria to grow. So again, even if you kill all the microorganisms in your plumbing system, you're still going to have, if the source is colonized, you're still going to have bacteria coming in. And they're likely going to come in because statistically, 50% of the buildings in the United States are colonized by Legionella, sometimes higher than that based on the area. So, you know, that's the cause of a shock treatment. Now, for a supplemental disinfecting system, the, you know, you're always going to be protected because you're feeding something constantly, but it requires a little bit more work. You know, it, it's a system that needs to be installed. So you will likely have to do plumbing modification, which sometimes are minimal. You know, it's a one-time thing. But then, you know, somebody the water treater will have to take care of the supplemental disinfectant system. Well, let's take each one of those and expand them just slightly. So if we were to do a shock disinfection, what would our options be? 
and why would we choose one over another? Usually, the disinfectants that are used for a shock treatment are fast oxidants. You know, you need something that is capable of killing microorganisms very fast, so it's a very strong oxidant. So usually, chlorine or chlorine dioxide are being implemented as, you know, shock uh, treatment options. Chlorine, we're basically talking about bleach, so it's as easy as hooking up a dosing pumps to the backflow preventer of the building and just hyperchlorinate the whole building. For chlorine dioxide, there are different technologies available in the marketplace to either produce chlorine dioxide on site. So that would be something that you would use as a supplemental disinfectant system, so a chlorine dioxide generator. But for a shock treatment, there are chlorine dioxide solutions that, you know, very highly concentrated solution that can be used for, you know, shock treating a building with, with chlorine dioxide. Would you ever use monochloramine as a shock? There are few um, available documents in the literature uh, documenting the use of monochloramine for shock treatment. It's usually not being used for two main reasons, uh, because it's, a, it's slower than chlorine and chlorine dioxide. It's more, it's more stable, which is actually the beauty of the molecule. And there are no monochloramine solutions available in the marketplace. So you will literally have to install a generator that you would use for supplemental disinfection purposes just to do a shock chlorination. What buildings do sometimes, they install a monochloramine system for supplemental disinfection because that's what they want to do. But at the beginning of the program, they decide to shock treat the building with monochloramine because they already have the generator on site. And another option is uh, copper silver. When would you use that? No, copper silver is not being used for short cords remediation. It's not being used as a shock disinfectant. It's only being used, uh, it's almost like monochloramine. It's only being used as supplemental disinfectant. Copper silver is, you know, almost the same as monochloramine. You would need a system in the building to produce copper silver. So it's usually not being used as a, as a shock treatment chemical. And the last item that would be available to us is, is just heat. Uh, so my question to you is, do people just heat or just use one of the options we talked about? Or a lot of times do they use two things at once, like heat and hyperchlorination? You wouldn't do that together because the higher the temperature, the faster the chlorine will decay in the water. But yes, uh, you're 100% correct, and I forgot to mention that. Um, heat or superheating is another way, is another short course remediation for Legionella treatment. So in the concept there is heating the temperature to a point where you know the bacteria will start to die. There there is a lot of data in the literature showing that um, they say that 140 Fahrenheit is the magic temperature kill Legionella, but in a plumbing system is not like being in a lab. It's much harder to kill Legionella in a plumbing system with just heat because first of all, you need to ensure that you are carrying the high temperature everywhere in the plumbing system, um, as well as you would have to flush all the faucets and carry that temperature to all the fixtures and you know showers, faucets in the facility. And again, the cons of short course treatment is that 
it's well reported that are not effective over the long term because it's almost pretty much impossible to kill all the bacteria that you have in the in your plumbing system just a few hours plus you're still going to be subjected to what is coming in from the city. Unfortunately, a lot of times buildings want to do that because they see that as an easy way out, right? It's a, it's a one-time thing. I'm going to do it overnight. Yes, I have to go on water restriction, but it's not going to be a big deal. You know, I have to go on water restriction for six hours. I'll do it from 10 p.m. at night until 4 o'clock in the morning. A lot of manpower, but again, one time, who cares? But uh, so a lot of times facility want to do that because they think it's, you know, it's easier and it's going to be effective. Uh, but as a matter of fact, it, it usually comes back more often than what people will think. Let's put it that way. Alberto, earlier you had mentioned that people will use heat and just their general maintenance to try to keep their Legionella positives down. In doing so, uh, you just disclosed that we have to keep it at least 140 degrees. Well, that's pretty hot. So if somebody turns on the hot water, they might be getting a lawsuit because they're now burned. How are people dealing with that? Yes, correct. You know, it, it, that's why I was saying that you would have to go on, in, on, on water restriction because you can deliver water that is too hot to the room so nobody can use water or scalding issues. And uh, it's a waste of energy as well because 140 is the what it's reported in the literature. But as a matter of fact, you would have to actually heat the water at temperatures that are higher than 140. 140 is when it stops to grow. So you will probably have to go up to 150, 160. You can't deliver that water to the to the fixtures because it's too hot. So you would have to go on you know water restriction. People could not use the water. The same as a shock chlorination. People could not use the water um, as you're doing the treatment. Just want to be clear because, as you mentioned, a lot of buildings think that that's an easy, free issue. Everything's already installed. Just crank up the heat. So I wanted to make sure everybody was thinking about that full course of action, not just what was easy, but actually what's going to happen if you do that. Well, let's, let's shift gears now and say that the shock disinfection worked. Well, actually, before we do that, how would we know the shock disinfection worked? Uh, well, you would have to test after the shock treatment is being performed, you know, and a lot of times people test right after. So right after it might look like that worked, but then you test a few weeks later and you're back, your problem is back. So, you know, testing is the only way to validate that whatever remediation you are implementing is working. So we did a test, maybe we did a subsequent test, and everything looks good. So we feel like we got everything for now. Of course, it's going to come back because it's coming in through the, the makeup water. But the shock disinfection was successful on this application. And now a facility says, you know, we really don't want to have that risk as we did before. So we want to add a continuous disinfection to our building. What does the water treatment professional need to know to guide that conversation? And what does that process look like? Well, you know, if the facility wants to implement a supplemental disinfectant, they need to look at the options that are available in the marketplace. And, you know, options are chlorine, chlorine dioxide, and monochloramine that are water disinfectant. So those are water disinfectant listed by the EPA under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And then, of course, you mentioned 
copper silver as well, which are technically not disinfectants, but they are being used as you know, supplemental disinfectants or you know, Legionella remediation technologies. So the first thing the water treater should do is you know, go in a building and see where to apply the supplemental disinfectants. So the million dollar question is, do I treat the entire cold water going into the building or do I treat just the hot water system? It depends who you ask for, right? You know, there's not a, a universal answer to, to that question. There, you know, you can um, see that from different point of views. First of all, Legionella does not colonize. It comes in from the cold water, but doesn't really colonize in cold water. Legionella is a thermotolerant uh, pathogen. It grows in warm water, and that's why it's harmful for human beings, because it grows in our lungs. Uh, that's a perfect temperature for, for the bacteria. So... Sometimes treating the entire cold water in a building is unnecessary because that's not where the problem is. Especially the cold water in a building in healthcare facilities, it's usually 90% of the entire water uh, is cold water only. Whereas the hot water in a building uh, is usually 10 to 15%. Um, so treating the entire cold water, you'll be looking at you know, much more chemicals, much bigger equipment, to literally dump your disinfectant in the toilets when people flush the toilets or, you know, in your cooling towers where they already have a biocide program. But, you know, it depends where you are in the country. Sometimes cold water is not really cold. You know, you're down in the south during summer, down in Florida and Texas, Southern California. Even if we're talking about cold water, it could be warm enough to, you know, present a threat uh, for Legionella growth or the healthcare facility that you're working with or the building that you're working with might be concerned about different pathogens that actually colonize better in cold water. So in that specific case, it would make more sense to treat the cold rather than the hot. But for Legionella purposes, it's better to treat the uh, hot water system. Now, as water treaters, it's easier, let's say, to understand that, but when you talk with building um, engineers and building managers, which don't really you know, deal with water uh, on a daily basis, they see as, well, if they're going to treat the cold water, we're going to treat the entire water in the facility, which will be cold and hot, so it's better. But it's not, you know, it's not like that. When you are implementing a supplemental disinfectant for Legionella remediation, what really matters at the end of the day is to establish a consistent disinfectant residual in the domestic hot water system. Because you're going to treat all the fixtures as well, as long as you're flushing hot water through the fixtures. But if you were to feed the disinfectant on cold water only, uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a good residual in the domestic hot water system. Um, because it depends on the domestic hot water turnover time, uh, where the domestic hot water system is physically is in the building compared to the point of entry. You know, if it's far away, uh, that water with the disinfectant has to travel all the way to the domestic hot water system, flow into the uh, domestic hot water heaters. The heat exchange in that, so, you know, the shift in temperature will be uh, detrimental to the disinfectant stability. So you might end up um, using a lot more chemicals to treat the entire water and then end up with little to no disinfectant in the domestic hot water system, which is where your target is. So once they determine what they're going to treat and they're going to consider if they're going to use chlorination, monochloramine, 
Where do they go now? Do they do they reach out to a vendor, a, a trusted advisor? What information do they need so they can guide the customer through the process so they can get the right equipment showing up, they can get that equipment installed and actually do what they're hoping it will do? Well, of course, you need to understand the, um, the building size and size the correct um, type of system that you want to put in. Of course, if you ask to different vendors, they're all going to tell you that their system is the best, you know, in the, in the marketplace. That's, that's kind of normal. But the good thing is that there is a lot of data published by the APA. Uh, there is a document by the APA published in 2016. It's a whole technology review for uh, legionella remediation. Uh, you can download it for free on the APA website. There are a lot of scientific papers published by the EPA and other researchers, you know, universities or labs, um, assessing the efficacy of um, supplemental disinfectants in building water system. So, you know, it's it's good to start from that, uh, gather some data, and understand um, what the pros and the cons of or, of all the options are. You know, I can go through that, um, you know, real quick. You know, sometimes uh, people want to store chlorine because it's easier. You know, it, it's cheaper, it's easier. You literally need a bucket with bleach into it. You just connect uh, your chlorine dosing pump to your domestic hot water return and you just feed off of the ORP. So a very easy system, very easy to implement, quick to install, doesn't require major plumbing modification. But it is known that chlorine, it's not really effective against Legionella. Now, if we're talking about shock chlorination, very high concentration of chlorine, um, if we look at the CT values, it might look like the chlorine is a good alternative. But again, we're not in a lab when I'm trying to kill Legionella in a beaker. I'm in a plumbing system, and there are a lot of different variables that are beyond anybody's control. You know, it's water age in the building, water recirculation, water temperature, dead legs, presence of oxygen demand in the system. So, you know, corrosivity issues. So the, the problem with very highly oxidant biocides is, is that they are highly oxidant. Um, you know, that, that's kind, it, it, it sounds strange, but that's their Achilles heel. Um, because they are so oxidant, they will literally react with organics that are in the water, or they will decay faster over time. So they could be great in killing Legionella, but the problem with... Um, you know, uh, strong oxidant, such as chlorine and chlorine dioxide as well, is that it's very, it's extremely hard to establish a consistent residual everywhere in the plumbing system. So yes, you do have a molecule that is very effective, but you are not going to be able to achieve the exposure that you need between the molecule and the microorganism, right? Maybe in a hundred years, there's going to be the perfect disinfectant that it's not corrosive, it's perfect, kills Legionella in, in 0.2 seconds every time, no issues whatsoever. But if the actual microorganism is not in contact with the molecule, nothing is going to happen. So that's the problem with oxidant molecules. They could be great, but it's very hard to disperse them everywhere in the plumbing system just because they decay as fast. To give you a practical example, you know, you know, in one story in a bathroom, you test for chlorine dioxide, you might get a good residual, and then you move up two floors and you got none. You know, so that's very typical for chlorine dioxide applications. 
If someone is running continuous disinfection, should they be running uh, a different interval of testing? Does the frequency of testing and the interval of testing change if they're running continuous disinfection? Yes, good question. Of course, you know, all the testing that we've been talking about up to now was Legionella testing, right? Let's make sure that your plan is working. So I want to test for Legionella. Now we need to think about testing for the actual disinfectant in the water and validate that I have disinfectant in the water, right? I have my system started up and running. Uh, Looks like the system is running fine, no alarms, no nothing, but then I have to validate that my system is putting out the disinfectant at the levels that I want. And the way to do that is to test for the disinfectant. Now, the good thing is that there are on-site tests uh, with TestKit that the facility people can run, you know, in different part of the building, and that can make sure that the disinfectant is there. Now, I personally like to test every day because usually those tests are very easy to do, are very quick to do, so they're not uh, a burden for the facility. But then you have to you know, be realistic. And a lot of time, facility people are not willing to test as often as a water treater would like. But I would say that probably like a couple of times a week that that is a good media to make sure that your disinfectant is in the water at the level that you want. Unless you are in one state where you need to apply for a permit to feed a supplemental disinfectant with the authority having jurisdiction in that specific state, So in that case, the state will say how many times you have to test. And then you have to report the data uh, back to the state. So you have to test at whatever frequency they tell you to test. Now, how would you know if you resided in one of those states? Well, you technically would have to research that. And the way you do that is to figure out who is the authority having jurisdiction uh, for drinking water in that state. So that's step one. Um, so it could be the EPA, it could be the DOH, the DP, and then ask them if a permit is needed for the application of a supplemental disinfectant on drinking water, on cold water. And sometimes when you work with water treaters and with product manufacturer, they usually, they usually know that, you know, if, if they have business in that state already, they usually know if a permit is required and if it is, what is the uh, process to do so. The cons to that is that there's no uniformity among the states, right? Like, um, I'm off in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, you need to apply for a permit. In New Jersey, you don't. You know, so you, you literally uh, drive across the bridge and you're good. You don't have to apply for a permit. But if you're on the Pennsylvania side, you have. Do some states require to be a licensed operator as well? Yes. So usually when a permit is issued by the state, you need a licensed operator to oversee the supplemental disinfection application in a building. I mean, there are some issues related to the permit process, in my opinion. You know, I think you should start to look at what is the goal of the permit. Uh, The permit has a purpose, right? It's protect the public health. It's making sure that an application is made the way it's supposed to, so it doesn't pose any threat to the people that are in the building, right? Otherwise, everybody could just buy bleach and feed bleach in a building you know, without any sort of control, then we're done, right? We don't want that to happen. The problem, though, with a permit is, you know, starting from if somebody doesn't know how to apply, sometimes it could be a process that takes some time and some resources, especially, you know, financial resources. So it's figure, first step, it's figure out who do I have to ask 
uh, how do I apply for the permit? And sometimes in some states, the regulators make the permit process so hard for whatever reasons that I'm still trying to figure out that, you know, it's, detri- it's going to be detrimental to public health because you have a facility that has a Legionella problem. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to feed a disinfectant. But the process to do that is so hard, you know, it's so difficult that at some point the facility keeps up. Uh, they say, you know, it's too much for us. And you mentioned the licensed operator. Sometimes the facility doesn't have a licensed operator on staff. A lot of water treatment firms do, but a lot, a lot of them don't. So the facility sometimes need to hire an external person as a licensed operator. Now, there is a lot of discussion right now going on with AJWA and AWWA, which I'm part of a committee uh, in AWWA, about finding and creating a certification for building licensed operators. Like in, in, in a perfect world, the CWT certification would be um, equal to that certification, right? Because when you mentioned, when you mentioned a, a licensed operator, we're talking about a municipal water treatment plant licensed operator. So it's a person that is doing the job at the municipal level, but that person usually, you know, works in a municipality and they don't really understand the water chemistry in a building. You know, a building is a completely different ecosystem than a water treatment uh, utility and a municipal distribution system. You know, in a building we have, first of all, water heaters, uh, domestic water system. Um, booster pumps, uh, receiver pumps, cooling towers, boilers, chillers. Um, you know, we have all these components that licensed operators don't really know. So with all of these different things that we can do, we're now testing for it. Maybe we have a permit. Maybe we have to have some sort of license. We've done all of these things. And we're doing all of these things to keep people safer. We don't want people to get sick. And we don't want the liability. So my question to you is, is one method better than another when it comes to what the courts see as due diligence? I don't think the court will actually look at the method that is being implemented, but they're probably going to look at the test results uh, after a specific method was implemented. So the key is to implement the method that is the most efficient in reducing your risk of having legionella in the water, right? And we kind of went through the pros and cons of chlorine and chlorine dioxide. Now we can talk a little bit more about copper silver and monochloramine. Mono- copper silver has been used for longer time than monochloramine in building. It could work over the um, short term, but it is proven in the literature that copper silver kind of loses efficacy over the long term. Just because the mechanism of action with the bacteria um, is different. You know, monochloramine, more stable than chlorine and chlorine dioxide, but still an oxidant. So they actually oxidize the microorganism completely or some protein that are responsible for metabolic process of the micro, you know, of the microorganism. So the microorganism cannot sustain life anymore and will die, right? Um, whereas copper and silver are metallic ions. Um, that will poison the microorganism. So they would do the same that heavy metal would do to a human being, you know, would poison the microorganism. So 
it's reported that the microorganism could develop resistance over the long term to those ions. I mean, there are studies where good control was achieved at the beginning of the treatment. And then after a few years, you know, Legionella came back, even if the levels of copper silvers were good uh, in the plumbing system. Monochloramine has been used in the United States as a supplemental disinfection system um, against Legionella, has been used for a little bit longer in Europe, in buildings. As of now, there, there's no data reporting that Legionella comes back after a certain time with the use of monochloramine. And the beauty of monochloramine, uh, as I mentioned before, it's stability. Because it's more stable, it's going to be easier to establish the residual everywhere in the plumbing system by feeding it to your water. Um, so that's why it usually works better than chlorine and chlorine dioxide and copper silver. If you could only get one point across today, what do you want that point to be? That, you know, there is no silver bullet uh, when it comes to water disinfection and there is no an easy magic way to fix the problem in the plumbing system, as well as it's usually a different people approach, right? So you are installing a supplemental disinfection system in a building. A lot of people think that, okay, I'm going to switch my brain off and I don't have to any, I don't have to do anything more related to my water system because I have my supplemental disinfection system uh, installed. First of all, is drinking water, so this, that system uh, needs to be maintained, but then flushing is still crucial from the building in order to get the disinfectant everywhere in the plumbing system. So installing a supplemental disinfectant system doesn't automatically give you 100% success rate for Legionella, you know, and then you don't have to think about anything else. It's, you know, there, 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 there is homework, there are homeworks to do uh, when a supplemental disinfection system is, is installed. You know, not heavy load of homeworks, but there, there are homeworks, homeworks to do. Well, we appreciate all this information. I have no doubt this is going to be uh, another show that people are going to get a lot of information and probably listen to multiple times. So uh, thank you for sharing all your knowledge, all your experience. But before I say goodbye, how about a new round of lightning round questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. So here we go. Question number one, what would you say your superpower is? My superpower is what, you know, a lot of people that deal with water hygiene should have has a superpower is, you know, being able to speak different languages. And with different languages, I'm not talking about Italian and American. I'm talking about, you know, sometimes you have to talk with different people in, in a building. You know, you have to talk with the facility director or the infection preventionist or the water treater. So you have to be able to uh, deliver information uh, in a way that people will understand, you know. Uh, so you have to you have to have the good water treatment slash chemistry balance based on who you're talking with. So I think I'm, you know, that's probably one of my superpower, <laughs> my superpowers. What would you say over your career your biggest accomplishment has been? Uh, my biggest accomplishment, uh, I don't think there's one in particular. You know, I, I get very happy when, you know, there is a building that is, ne is in need of help for protecting people. And sometimes if you, if you look at that from the building standpoint, it is extremely stressful. Uh, these people in the building, they literally freak out when they have a problem. And sometimes they feel that they can, you know, they can't fix the problem. You know, they try different things and it doesn't work and it keeps coming back. It gets, 
extremely frustrating. I, I don't really know how those people uh, sleep at night sometimes. So it is very good. And I consider that, you know, a good accomplishment when you go in a building, you have them out, it's working and you can, you can literally see that, you know, they are, you know, they're in peace at that point. They trust you. They're happy. So I think, you know, that's a good achievement from, you know, from a career standpoint, you know, it feels really good when, you know, you're helping people and, you know, there's always the joke, like, right, we're saving lives, right? We, we don't know who we're saving, but we're saving lives because we're keeping people safe in buildings. So that's, you know, that's a good way to think about that. It's a, it's a good goal. It's a good achievement. Last question. You now have a magic wand. You can change anything you want in the world. What would you change? My bank account. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, if we fix all the water problems with a magic wand, uh, we're going to end up losing our jobs. So I don't know if I would use my ma- magic wand to do that. But, you know, I definitely, uh, I will use my, you know, in terms of water, I would definitely use my magic wand to help people where getting, uh, to where filling a, a bucket of five gallons of water is difficult. So definitely helping that uh, in delivering water. There was actually a, a very good presentation at the AWT the last day about, um, you know, where will you be where the water crisis in the world will be over. Uh, you know, that was a really great presentation. So definitely, you know, in, in the world of water, that what I would do in the world of sport, I would have the Phillies winning the War Series and the Eagles winning the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> so we got two parades in Philadelphia. Uh, and you were actually uh, referencing Reed Hutchison's uh, presentation that he did on World Vision's Global 6K and uh, then also Pure Water for the World. We did an episode on that. I'll have to look it up to see what episode that was. But uh, great answer. And thank you again for sharing all the information that you have with uh, all your firsthand experience. Thank you for being a guest once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing everybody in Grand Rapids next year, the next AWT convention. Nation, I have heard rumors that Alberto is one of the best cooks. Now, I have no firsthand experience with this, hint, Alberto. However, if maybe the opportunity arises, I don't know, maybe you've got a kitchen at your AWT booth that's coming up in just a few short weeks. I don't know, I'd love to sample and see if I can either confirm or disprove. I'm sure I wouldn't disprove. I just want to eat your food. So who knows? Maybe he'll be cooking up something at the booth at the Association of Water Technologies Conference coming up in Grand Rapids. Nation, speaking of cooking up, James McDonald is always cooking up something new for all of us each and every week so we can have fun as we are learning more about industrial water treatment. So here is a brand new installment of Periodic Water Table with James. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's Periodic Water Table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... Ammonia. Ammonia comes into play in several different ways within industrial water treatment. 
What are some sources of ammonia that may be coming in with the makeup water? How is ammonia used in refrigeration? Could this ammonia contaminate the water side? How is ammonia sometimes used in boilers? Are there some industries that prohibit such use of ammonia in boilers? How does ammonia react with chlorine? Why is this reaction important and what does it have to do with breakpoint chlorination? How do you remove ammonia from water? How does pH affect the removal of ammonia? How does the impact of pH on ammonia removal compare to the impact of pH on carbon dioxide removal? Which metallurgies may be less compatible with ammonia? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Nation, do you have an idea for a podcast? So many people helped us start out Legionella Awareness Month this month with a question. And we, of course, had about a dozen questions that we took from the Scaling Up H2O mailbag. I don't know if we would have had a show without those questions. So help me keep this show on the air. Let me know what you want me to talk about. You can go to scalinguph2o.com and you've got a couple of ways you can send that information to us. One, there is a record voicemail button right there on the homepage. You can record your own voice asking whatever your question or giving us somebody you want to interview or whatever the show idea is. Or if you want to type that out, you can go over to the show ideas page and you can let us know whatever it is that you want us to have a show about. We are always looking for new ideas. And Nation, I hope you've used these last three episodes to help you understand a little bit more about Legionella. There's a lot of information out there about Legionella, and people are looking to us. Our customers are looking to us to sort through that sea of information and give them finite knowledge of what they need to know so they can make better decisions. And that is the whole point. Every year when we do Legionella Awareness Month, I am sure we did not fall short of that this year. Now it's your turn. I hope you take this information and you start to learn even more. You start creating dialogues with your customers and you empower them to do something so people do not have to suffer Legionnaire's disease. Have those conversations. Counsel your customers. Make sure that they are moving in a positive direction. And one more time, I will mention it, something to help you get started with all of that is going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash legionella. We have all of that information on our webpage for you. Nation, thanks for being a member of the Scaling Up Nation. I will be with you next week for a brand new episode of Scaling Up H2O next Friday. Have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, you asked for it and it is here. 
So many of you are taking the Certified Water Technologist examination and you're wanting to get better information on how to better answer the mock exam. Now this is the exam that you get when you sign up for the CWT exam. Well, I have heard your request and I've done exactly that. I have recorded a class that has exactly what you've been asking for. It is me answering each one of the questions and letting you know why I chose certain answers. And of course, everybody wants me to do math and I do all the math on the mock exam. So you can see how to get the right answer. And I hope this is something that will help build your confidence so you can get your certification. You can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Get out there and get your certification today.